0: Episode 18 of the Book of Basketball 2.0 on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Just like basketball, the game of life is unpredictable. Talk to a State Farm agent and get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. You know who's unexpected? Russell Westbrook making the all-star team over Devin Booker. I'm not sure how that one happened. Get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Talk to a State Farm agent today. We're also brought to you by ringer.com, where you can find a ton of good writing and podcasting and even videos about basketball and the NBA. Coming up is a story about Kobe Bryant and how he passed through my life in December of 2012. My name is Bill Simmons. This is The Book of Basketball 2.0. still and you already feel. Pass it to Luke, yeah. He's gonna juke, yeah, yeah. It's a book of basketball, 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 yeah. When Kobe Bryant called me out of the blue in December of 2012, I was heading to a Christmas party on a Saturday night. Kobe was plowing through his 17th NBA season, the last time he'd ever make first-team All-NBA. His beloved Lakers, they were already falling apart. Kobe's defenders maintained that it wasn't his fault that Kobe hadn't been this efficient offensively in years, that you couldn't blame him for Dwight Howard's back, Steve Nash's leg, even Mike Brown's brain. His detractors, they saw another unhappy Lakers season unfolding like Kobe karaoke. Dissension and chaos, Kobe undermining his coach, Kobe blasting teammates to the press, Kobe hogging the ball in close games. And you know what? Both takes were probably right. That's one of the many reasons Kobe was the most polarizing superstar since Will Chamberlain. But if you were a basketball purist, you appreciated how hard Kobe played, how driven and demanding he was, how fellow stars and retired legends universally defended him and sung his praises. Maybe he disliked some of the off-court stuff, his arrogance, or in the eyes of Lakers fans, his confidence, the occasional bursts of selfishness, maybe even how Kobe's ideal basketball situation always seemed to double as the one in which everything went through Kobe Bryant. In those early Laker years, he definitely carried himself a little like King Joffrey. In his prime, he seemed too self-aware, giving himself nicknames blurting out strange comments at the wrong times, always keeping his family lurking around for another photo op. Being a Celtics fan, I probably would have rooted against Kobe Bryant anyway, but he sure made it easy. In 2011, I had lunch with Phil Jackson, and Phil confessed to me that he definitely didn't want to be coaching Kobe when Kobe wasn't Kobe anymore. The Lakers were swept by Dallas that spring. Jackson retired from coaching shortly after. I was not surprised. The conventional wisdom, basketball would end badly for Kobe. It had to. Kobe was wired like a champion boxer, someone so competitive and so relentless, they'd have to knock him out, or in Kobe's case, embarrass him, at least a few times before he reluctantly called it quits. As Doug Collins always told me, there's nothing harder than coaching a superstar when they aren't a superstar anymore. But Kobe had another wrinkle up his sleeve that none of us expected in the 2012 Olympics, his goofier side surfaced. When the team started doing Instagram photos, he became their elder statesman, the legend in waiting who appreciated his good fortune and relished the ride. He also cultivated relationships with various high profile media members, correctly assuming that they'd be the one who controlled how his legacy was written. He started spilling his thoughts on Facebook. Remember that? Candid stuff, personal stuff, the things we always wanted athletes to say. His most provocative post was inspired by a social media beef with former teammate, Swish Parker, who was playing in China at the time and bristled when Kobe ridiculed him. He responded by questioning Kobe's leadership abilities. Uh-oh. A frustrated Kobe responded with a captivating Facebook rant about leadership that we're going to tackle in a second. But there was a growing sense that Kobe... More than any superstar before him believed he was misunderstood as a competitor and a leader that he wanted to rectify this injustice in real time. And look, every basketball legend handles the end of their prime differently. Almost always it ends poorly of the 15 greatest retired players ever. Only Bill Russell nailed his exit from basketball. Everyone else hung on too long, or got derailed by injuries or something else. Well, by December of 2012, Kobe was already 34 years old with 220 playoff games and nearly 1,200 regular season games under his belt. His harshest critics believed he was never leaving, that his final season would unfold like Tony Montana's last 20 minutes in Scarface. Still, they marveled at Kobe's inspiring battle with Father Time, how he kept churning out the same numbers, 25 per night, every night. Night after night, same intensity, after reinventing his inside-outside game, much like Jordan did. Could he get to six titles? Could he break Kareem's scoring record? Could he reach 40,000 points? Could he thrive for two decades? How far would he push himself? And how would that quest affect everyone around him? Remember, by that point, Kobe was cultivating his own legacy in real time, as carefully as any NBA star ever. By 2012, he wanted to be remembered as the greatest Liker of all time. He wanted to be at least mentioned with Jordan, and he understood the sheer power of numbers better than anyone else. In the words of Andy Dufresne, this was really about pressure over time. Kobe couldn't pass Jordan or Magic conventionally, not with regular season brilliance, not with playoff numbers, not with peak performance. That ship sailed, but the totality of his career numbers as well as his staggering longevity could sway the big picture narrative his way. And he knew it. Kobe's era offered unparalleled advantages in conditioning, dieting, workout equipment, stretching routines, surgical techniques, even goofier advantages like napping and sneakers, even had the educational power of the internet, which allowed him to study opponents and study himself and constantly mine everyone's worlds for more and more information. By the end of 2012, Any driven NBA superstar could dream of thriving for two solid decades. Kobe wanted to be the first. Pressure over time. But here's the thing, Kobe had a fatal flaw. He simply couldn't handle it when his teammates weren't as driven as he was. It's just as easy to remember Kobe's unhappy Lakers teams as the happy ones. Remember Shaq left Los Angeles on such hostile terms that the two of them didn't talk for years and his second-best teammate, Pau Gasol, looked totally broken by 2012. His only good coach ever, Phil Jackson, the greatest coach of all time, quit the Lakers, and even before that, wrote a 2005 book that fearlessly tore Kobe to shreds with astonishing candor. This was a complicated guy. Kobe carried grudges way longer than the typical superstar. Even inconsequential former teammates like Kwame Brown Slavo Medvedenko, and yes, Smush Parker. They all felt his wrath. He said things to the press like, if it doesn't get better, I'm going to kick everyone's asses. And he said it seriously. Nobody knew if he was kidding or not. He'd become the irascible old guy, the one who knew better than everyone else. And yeah, he had to let you know. Kobe's 2012 leadership style was just a different way to carry a basketball team through fear, through conflict, through bullying, through the media. He led by example, and if you didn't like that example, he quickly reminded you how many rings he had. That worked better when Jackson and Derek Fisher were on the Lakers. Something of a good cop, bad cop dynamic had developed with Kobe driving the team competitively and the other two guys balancing him out. By 2012, that balance, it cratered. Could Kobe see the forest through the trees? It was unclear. He could barely hide his contempt for Dwight Howard, his new teammate, a crucial development since Dwight could simply flee in free agency that summer. The carefree Howard was practically put on earth to torture Kobe and bring the worst out of him. During one December scrimmage with Howard dogging it, Kobe screamed at him, you don't know anything about winning championships. That same week, he needled Gasol publicly for not sucking it up with knee tendinitis, saying he needed to, quote, put your big boy pants on unquote. The whole thing was bizarre, even by Kobe's standards. But it was more bizarre for me because I had just spent two days in Seattle with Bill Russell, the greatest winner in basketball history, who told me during that time that he had never criticized a teammate, not once, not for 13 solid years. And after I left Seattle, I couldn't stop thinking about Russell and Kobe and their contrasting leadership styles. I wanted to write about it. I was hosting NBA Countdown for ESPN that season. So I spent the day picking Magic Johnson's brain about leadership, playing off everything I learned from Russell in Seattle and everything I'd been watching from Kobe. This seems like a good time to mention um, Magic's one of the best five players ever, one of the greatest teammates ever. I would say he was uniquely qualified to have this conversation. Magic believed there were four ways to lead a basketball team first, by example. Second, by intimidation. Third, by being a communicator, talking all the time, which is what Magic did. And fourth, by being some combination of all three, or maybe even two of the three. Here's the thing Magic didn't believe there was a right way or a wrong way. He believed basketball teams assume the personality of their best player for better or worse. And that's always been the case. And guess what? He's right. As for Kobe, we already knew his thoughts. Why? He posted them on Facebook during the Smush Parker beef. This was the strangest moment of Kobe's career, and possibly the most incredible, depending on how you feel about his 81-point game. Here's what Kobe wrote on Facebook. Quote: Leadership is responsibility. There comes a point when one must make a decision. Are you willing to do what it takes to push the right buttons to elevate those around you? If the answer is yes. Are you willing to push the right buttons, even if it means being perceived as the villain? Here's where the true responsibility of being a leader lies. Sometimes you must prioritize the success of the team ahead of how your own image is perceived. The ability to elevate those around you is more than simply sharing the ball or making teammates feel a certain level of comfort. It's pushing them to find their inner beast even if they end up resenting you for it at the time. End quote. Allow me to interject. I think that's the most fascinating thing Kobe Bryant ever said. He just explained everything. He wasn't exaggerating. He wasn't writing those words for effect. This was as simple as this. Every time I lay into Gasol or Howard, it's because I am pushing them to find their inner beast. And I don't give a shit if they resent me for it. Well, was that the reason Gasol responded so beautifully in game seven, of the 2010 finals, 19 points, 18 rebounds, nine offensive boards, toughest big man in the game. Did that happen because Kobe pushed him to embrace whatever an inner beast is called in Spanish? Did Kobe believe this? Clearly he did. Okay. Back to the Facebook post. Here's the rest of what he wrote. Quote, I'd rather be perceived as a winner than a good teammate. I wish they both went hand in hand all the time, but that's just not reality. I have nothing in common with lazy people who blame others for their lack of success. Great things come from hard work and perseverance. No excuses. This is my way. It might not be right for you, but all I can do is share my thoughts. It's on you to figure out which leadership style suits you best. We'll check back in with you soon. Till then. Mamba out. End quote. The entire post was 219 words. And it inspired me. That Friday, I wrote a column centered around that Facebook post in my two unforgettable days with Russell in Seattle. That piece was called The Kobe Question. You just heard some of it actually, tailored for 2020, obviously. But in that piece, I wondered if Kobe's Facebook post could evolve into his own version of Bill Russell's. Famous book, Second Wind. Why not? It was everything you ever wanted to know about Kobe's basketball career in 219 words. He didn't need a book. That brings me to another story involving a Hall of Fame center. In 2009, I drove down to San Diego to interview Bill Walton for the epilogue of my basketball book. And we ended up arguing in a good natured way about Kobe's recent Lakers title that had just happened a couple weeks earlier. My book, as well as the 2.0 podcast a decade later, argued that success hinged on the secret of basketball that it wasn't actually about talent, but how you sacrificed your game and meshed with your teammates. The secret of basketball was that it wasn't about basketball. Copyright Isaiah Thomas. Walton believed that was more like a choice saying it was a player's responsibility to find his own destiny. He believed that path was different for every player. He also believed that I didn't enjoy watching Kobe that much because Kobe didn't play basketball the way I like to see basketball played. That was my choice. Just like it was Kobe's choice to play that way. And I think that's what Kobe described in that Facebook post. He made it painfully, glaringly clear after weighing every possibility, interacting with as many people as possible and reading everything he could read that he was making a conscious decision to behave a certain way. He wanted to become this kind of basketball player and this kind of leader. And he wanted us to know that he put real thought into it. So when Russell told me in Seattle a couple of weeks earlier that only one current superstar told him that he'd read second wind and stole Russell's trick of scouting his own teammates and that the player was Kobe Bryant, I probably shouldn't have been surprised. Here's what I wrote when I ended that Kobe column in 2012, quote, that was Kobe. He considered everything, every angle, every nuance, every trick, everything that could possibly help him and determine what made sense for him and him alone. He wants to keep winning titles. He wants 40,000 points. He wants to be immortal. Unfortunately, he's also running out of time. So if the coach isn't working, he needs to go. If the new center isn't trying hard enough, he needs to try harder or else. If the old center can't snap out of this crazy funk, then he needs to put on his big boy pants and suck it up. Kobe Bryant would rather be perceived as a winner than a good teammate. Kobe Bryant figured out what leadership style suited him best. Kobe Bryant doesn't care if you think he's a villain. Kobe Bryant wants to win and keep winning. Like Bill Russell before him. It's his job to make them better. He just does it differently. And if you don't like it, he doesn't care. This is his way. Mamba out. End quote. We posted that column on a Friday afternoon and about 30 hours later, someone texted me claiming to be Kobe. They wanted to discuss what I wrote in that column, a column that, by the way, wasn't exactly that flattering for Kobe Bryant. I assumed it was one of my friends pranking me, so I texted back, how do I know it's you? And the person immediately texted me back, Of course it's me, Mr. Celtic, exclamation point. That just seemed like a joke Kobe would make, right? It had to be him. I told this person to call me. Keep in mind, it was Saturday night at around seven o'clock. My wife and I were heading to a Christmas party. Our young kids were chasing each other around the house. Our dogs were barking because the babysitter just arrived. And now my phone was ringing because some Kobe imposter was calling me. Only when I answered, there was no mistake. Deep, deep voice, ball-busting jokes right out of the gate. Kobe. It was definitely him. I rushed outside. I found a quiet spot in my backyard, and I listened to Kobe talk and talk. Turned out he loved what I wrote about him and Russell. In general, he believed people didn't discuss leadership enough that it was infinitely more important than anyone realized. His own leadership evolved over the years, Kobe told me. In 2008, he tried to lead by being everyone's buddy, by being overly supportive, by being a consistently, quote, good, unquote, teammate. All the things his detractors said he couldn't do, and he listened to him. Well, it didn't work. The Celtics carved them up in the finals. They were much tougher. Kobe said he spent the summer wondering what went wrong, ultimately tweaking his style the following season. He dropped the buddy-buddy routine. He became much more demanding, both publicly and privately, especially with Gasol, the one guy he needed most. When they competed in the 2008 Olympics in the gold medal game, Kobe said he went at Gasol with particular vigor. And when they returned for Lakers training camp, Kobe left his gold medal dangling in Gasol's locker. He was setting the tone, no fucking around. Kobe believed the Lakers played angrier that season because he was angrier, especially in the spring of 2009 and only because Garnett and Pierce had shown them the way. He said admirably of that Celtics team, quote, they were a fucking buzzsaw, end quote. Losing in 2008 helped him win. In 2009, he was sure of it. The 2010 finals ended up being champs versus champs, with Kobe's Lakers finally getting revenge against that buzzsaw in Game 7 at home by dominating that crucial piece of turf under each basket. They were a little fresher, a little tougher. And that includes Gasol, who was unusually relentless that night. In the last quarter, they broke the same Boston team that had previously broken them two years earlier. Kobe told me it happened for a variety of reasons, but mainly because of a complicated set of leadership decisions he made two summers earlier. That's why they won. That's what he believed. We ended up spending 35 minutes talking hoops, leadership, Russell, the Lakers, you name it. His experience on 2012's Olympic team was particularly insightful for him. He believed LeBron had figured it out, that there was an inner confidence in LeBron that just wasn't there when they played together in 2008. He called Chris Paul admiringly a, quote, bad motherfucker, end quote. He wasn't sure what would happen with Oklahoma City, just that he was delighted that they traded Harden. He knew Durant was more talented, but he believed Westbrook was the, quote, dog, end quote, on that team. He meant that admiringly, too. We debated Durant and Westbrook a little. At that point, Durant looked like he was headed for multiple MVPs in a few titles. Kobe wasn't so sure. He thought it was really Westbrook's team, that Russ was the one with the dog in him, not Durant. So wait, I asked him, you think it's a potential problem? Maybe, Kobe said. And at this point, my wife was yelling at me that we were late for the Christmas party. She thought I was out there gabbing about basketball with a buddy, not talking to one of the greatest players ever. I had to leave. So long, Kobe. The phone call happened two weeks after my two days with Russell, and what shocked me was how similarly sophisticated they were. Not just about basketball, but human nature, too. I've been lucky enough to talk basketball for prolonged stretches with Bird, Russell, Nash, Durant, Curry, Magic, Kobe, Isaiah, Barkley, Walton, some of the greatest players ever. And really all of them were wired that way. That has to mean something, right? But you know, it's really crazy. I got the feeling during our first phone call that Kobe was delighted. I repeat, delighted that someone finally noticed his Facebook post. I actually think he spent significant time crafting it. I think he expected it would be a bigger deal, like Kobe's version of Jerry Maguire's mission statement or something. What a strange, fascinating, memorable guy. The following morning, I wrote down all the notes I could remember about our conversation, intending to write a detailed piece after Kobe's goofy Lakers season finally played out. What was going on with this dude? Was Kobe belatedly remodeling his legacy? Had this candor been bottled up for years? Was he something of a social late bloomer? Were these thoughts lurking inside him all along, only he couldn't unlock them until right now? As that disappointing season chugged along, he juggled Facebook and his new Twitter account brilliantly, finding the perfect balance of frankness, humor, information, and downright goofiness. He used hashtags like Mamba Talk. He started calling himself Vino, as in aging like a fine wine only none of it felt forced. My Greatland colleague, Jay Kang, wrote that Kobe reinvented himself so completely through social media that it almost felt like a catfishing. Was this really him? This was him, right? It turned out to be Kobe's last great season and it ended in something of a tornado, with Kobe demanding to play 48-minute games down the stretch, pushing himself too far, and eventually tearing his Achilles. This was Kobe's first major injury ever, And it was surely the beginning of the end. We waited for the ensuing tweets and Facebook posts that night. He delivered in spades. You felt his pain. You felt his frustration. You felt his fear. Kareem's scoring record couldn't happen now. That was gone. Six rings was probably gone too. And yet Kobe turned his single worst basketball moment into a positive. And what's funny is only one of his five greatest moments actually happened in the finals. The time young Kobe carried the shackless Lakers in game Four's dramatic overtime against the 2000 Pacers. That was his coming out party. The 81 point game. That's the second great moment. The gold medal game in 2008, when Kobe grabbed the steering wheel, just as that team was headed for a brick wall, that's the third. His 60 point game to end his career in 2016. That's the fourth and draining those last two free throws with his left foot dangling lifelessly from his leg. That's the fifth. If Jordan cemented his legacy with that title winning shot in Utah in 1998, then Kobe cemented his legacy that night. When your Achilles severs in half, at first you assume someone kicked you in the back of the leg. It takes an extra second to realize your foot is dangling from your ankle bone with nothing supporting it. And that's when you start thinking, no, 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 no. Well, Kobe knew right away He also knew Golden State would pick an ice-cold sub to shoot those clutch free throws and that the Lakers desperately needed the game. So he hobbled over the charity stripe and he swished both freebies flat-footed. Then he limped off into the sunset because that's what leaders do. They lead by example. I don't know if Kobe Bryant always realized that, but in the 80th game of his 17th NBA season, he realized it and it was a truly great moment. I remember the 2013 season for those free throws for Miami's 27 game winning streak for my year with magic and Wilbon and Jalen for San Antonio blowing the title for Ray Allen's miracle shot. And for the night, Kobe called me out of the blue and only because he wanted to talk about leadership on a random Saturday night. That summer I asked him if I could write about our phone call because I wanted to tie it into a bigger piece about Durant and Westbrook. No fucking way, he said. That was off the record. That was between you and me. Sure thing. I never wrote about it. We kept in touch over the next few years. I met his wife. He came on Grantland Basketball Hour. He texted me to check in after ESPN cut me loose. One time, we even ended up at the same soccer tournament with our daughters. He brought an oversized fancy canopy that said Mamba FC. It was bigger than every other canopy in the tournament because, of course, it was. Kobe didn't care. He didn't mind the attention. He didn't mind the photos. He's a proud soccer dad. And his daughter's field was far enough from my daughter's field that I didn't want to leave our game to walk all the way over. So I just texted him, teasing that he was making the other dads look cheap with that giant canopy. You should have come over to say hi, he texted me. I will next time, I told him.